Psalm 87 is printed for you in your bulletin or if you have your Bible or your phone. Follow along there. This is God's Word. Good, beautiful, and true. Of the, songs, of the sons of Korah, a song. A song. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And we'll say this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said that this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. And as they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and what you're about. And so we find out who we are in you. So I pray as we stop and reflect in these moments on this passage that you would move by your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. To see the treasures that are ours in Christ Jesus. Transform our hearts to love you all the more and to look more and more like you in our world. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> One of my favorite scenes in film history is from a movie called Antoine Fisher. Has everybody seen? I'm not going like, to take a poll, but... Came out in 99, so spoiler alert on this, you know, 23-year-old movie. Antoine Fisher. I won't do a full recount of the movie, but it's based on a true story of a young man named Antoine Fisher. And uh, Antoine, when he was, uh, before he was even born, his father was killed, his mom wound up in prison. Antoine was born in prison, put in an orphanage until his mom was to be released and she would come and claim him, but she never did and so Antoine became a ward of the state, and he just passed around in the foster system, eventually landing in this foster home that was filled with abuse and violence. He was abused by his foster parents and his foster sister. When he became 18, he joined the Navy to avoid homelessness. And when he got in the Navy, he began getting into trouble, fights. He was forced to come to terms with the abandonment, the violence, and the abuse that he had experienced in his life. All he knew was a rejection. All he knew was a world where he wasn't wanted. That was the definition of his entire existence up until he was 18. Through the help of a therapist, he decides to go find his birth family. He begins with his aunt. He tracks her down. And she says to come to her house. And the scene when he arrives at his aunt's house is, is, is jarring in his beauty. He walks up to the house and it's nighttime. The door opens and light floods out of the front door. And in that room are a host of aunts and uncles and cousins who are ecstatic that Antoine is there. They wrap him in hugs. There are tears running down their cheeks. They're patting him on the back. His little cousins have drawn pictures for him. And he walks in and he walks to the dining room and they open the dining room doors and there's a a table set up with this Christmas feast, just this absolute thing. Surrounding the table are the elders of the family. It's his dad's family, who he's never known. And his grandmother calls him over. With tears in her eyes, she holds Antoine's face in her hands, caressing it. Amazed that this grandson that was lost is now found in right in front of her, and through her tears she chokes out the word. And then the room erupts with feasting. 
and joy. Why? Because Antoine Fisher, abandoned and alone for most of his life, is now home, never to be alone again. He's found home. He's found a welcome. What we have in Psalm 87 is a welcome a lot like. It's a welcome to people who did not know they had a home. A welcome to folks with bad histories and bad backgrounds and wrong last names. It's a door flung open wide to hurting women and men and boys and girls with a seat at the table and a family ready to grow. This passage is at the heart of our church's core value. We're talking through our core values these past few months. Our core value of unity and diversity. Because there's a lot of talk about diversity in our world and good talk about diversity in our world. But before diversity is our idea, it's God's idea. Before it's our plan, it's God's plan. It's first His plan. It's at the heart of what He's up to in our world. And that's one of the things we see in this passage. So let's look at this passage. We'll break it down in a couple different sections to get our mind around it. And the first section is this, the home. The home. This is the first three verses. In a sense, all of Scripture is the story of God making His home with His people. That's kind of a thread that runs through the whole of Scripture. Now this is disrupted by sin, by rebellion, by rejection. This is disrupted by abuse and violence. But God's plan remains the same. It's why He reiterates it over and over again in the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. He is at work to make his home with his people, where they will thrive and flourish with him as the source for all the love that they'll ever need, the source of their flourishing. He promises to destroy the power of sin and to remove every boundary that stands in the way from his people flourishing with him as their God and they as his people. When we read the names Zion, which is repeated throughout this psalm, it's emphasizing this. Zion wasn't just another name for the city of Jerusalem. It's a poetic name. It's a poetic name that stands for this, that, that Jerusalem was the headquarters of God's action. Not that it was an inherently more holy or better city than anywhere else. Not that it was super special and God said, that's the best, that best, that has the best rating on TripAdvisor. That's, that's my place. Um, no, it's pointing that that was the place that God had made his home or begun to make his home. It was ground zero for God's rescue mission, headquarters for his grace in the Old Testament. And it all pointed forward to Jesus. Because the good news isn't that God takes up residence in a city, symbolically in a temple. I mean, that was great. But it all points forward to Jesus. Who, may, is, who is God making his home with us as one of us. That's why one of the titles Jesus has is Emmanuel. It means God with us. And all of this is pointing forward to the ultimate culmination of all of God's working, which we see at the end of the book of Revelation, when God makes his home with his people in the new heavens and new earth. A world completely healed of the effects of sin. So Zion is kind of jam-packed. When you see that word, it's jam-packed with that meaning in the Old Testament. Zion's God making his home. That's why it says in verse 1, it says he's founded his city. 
his city on the holy mountain, or why God is said to love the gates of Zion more than any other city of the cities inhabited by Israel. Or why it calls Zion the city of God in verse 3. All of this is pointing to the idea that this is the location where God has moved to town, where he has set up shop to put his grace to work in our world. So knowing all of this about Zion, about Jerusalem, is what makes the rest of this psalm so utterly shocking. Which is where I'm going next in our second section, the welcome, verses 4 and 5. Verse 3 begins to tell us that glorious things are said about Zion. Specifically, it tells us who is invited to call Zion their hometown. Or as the psalm puts it, who God will say, this one was born in Zion. This psalm is God handing out citizenship papers to his, to his city. It's God uh, handing out uh, citizenship papers to say that, that God's city, what he's about, that's where I belong. And the significance of this list is maybe lost on us. But if you were an ancient Jew at the time Psalm 87 was written, this would afford you. Let's walk through who's listed here as allowed to call Zion their hometown. The first one is Rahab. That's a poetic name for Egypt. The kingdom that had held Israel's ancestors in bondage for hundreds of years. This is the most significant enemy in the imagination of ancient Jews. I mean, we walked through the first part of the book of Exodus at the beginning of this year. You know how significant it was. It was the primary defining birth act of the nation of Israel that they had been delivered from slavery from Egypt. But God says he'll point to Rahab, to Egypt, and say, you were born in Zion. You belong here. Then he says Babylon. At the time this psalm was written, this would have been the most present threat in fact, not too long after this psalm was written, the Babylonians destroyed and tore down the temple. So the most significant uh, distant past enemy, the most significant current threat. Then it lists, lists uh, Philistia. That's the Philistines. In Israel's history, in the Promised Land, this was the most common threat. They were in continuous warfare for hundreds of years. Then it lists Tyre. Tyre was a kingdom that had been perhaps most uh, contributing to the false worship that had worked its way into Israel. And then Cush, which is Ethiopia. There's not a long history between Israel and Ethiopia, but this was probably the most likely the furthest kingdom away that the authors who wrote Psalm 87 knew about. So think of that list. The people who were most responsible for the pain of our past, our present, and our future. And the people on the other side of the world are going to be folks that God points to and say, You belong in my city. Your home is with me. It's like they made a list of the people that Israelites would least expect to find. Caring about God and what he was doing. But there it is. Psalm 87 says that the grace of God will extend beyond the narrow confines of national Israel and create a wildly, widely diverse kingdom. Psalm 87 tells us that diversity in the kingdom of God is a goal of his. 
It's not an accident. It's not something that accidentally happens. It's part of God's plan. Diversity is God's idea. He longs to see it happen. It says that God's grace will extend beyond the resistance of Egypt and Babylon or Philistia or Tyre or Don, all the way to Cush, to the other end of the world. Now imagine, imagine, let's try to get in the mindset. Imagine we're ancient Jews and we're in the temple. The first time the sons of Korah are debuting Psalm 87. They're singing it for the first time during worship. The song starts. This is a good one. I like it. Beat's good. Melody's good. And they get to verse 3 and they say, Glorious things are said of you, city of God. And you're like, yes, that's great. What are the glorious things that are said of our city? It's like if somebody's starting a USA chant. If you're ever at a sports bar or at an event, you start a USA. Verse 3, glorious things are said of you, city of God. Yes, and then they sing, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Felicia too. Entire along with Cush, will say this one was born in Zion, and you look at the singers and you think, What? No way. But then you remember, you remember something. You remember who's singing? The sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were descendants of Moses' nephew, a man named Korah. We meet him in number 16. He rose up as a self-styled religious leader in opposition to Moses. He basically gathered this militia and was trying to overthrow Moses. He was kind of like the Old Testament's Judas Iscariot. And he led, it led him to destruction and everybody who followed after him into trouble. He betrayed his uncle and he resisted what God was doing through Moses. It's his descendants that are singing this song, that wrote this song. Years later, his descendants, they found a home in the temple. They were the porters there. They cared for the physical stuff of the temple. They had a place there. Despite the rebellion of their ancestor, they had a place there in God's household. And their unique family history gave them an insight that more respectable people might have missed. The sons of Korah knew better than maybe anybody that God's grace is greater than a bad last name or a wrong background. Because they lived it out in their lives that a bad start to your story doesn't mean it has to end that way. That God can bend even the worst story toward himself for his glory and for our good. And that just like the sons of Korah went from being the descendants of a wicked man to the writers of scripture that we are reading today, that we can go from the long shadows of our histories, we can go from the unbroken cycles of abuses, we can go from the scars of others uh, that have been placed, we can go from even our own sin to find our all in Jesus. We can find our home because God has made our home with Him. We can find a grace stronger than our family histories. This is the welcome. God's making his home here, not for condemnation, but for grace. And the doors have been flung open wide for us to make our home with him. That brings me to the next section, the song. Psalm 87 is not God's people, uh, is not God asking his people to, sit, to shut up and pretend that slavery in Egypt wasn't a big deal. Or that Babylon wasn't a threat. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like sticking your head in the sand. Because Egypt could not find their name written in Zion and still trade in slavery. 
Babylon could not continue to decimate people and find their hope in God. Psalm 87 is not God winking at those historical injustices and pretending to matter, but it is an invitation to all these people for them to lay down their arms. It's an invitation to us to lay down our arms and to come to Him and find in Him what it means to be remade and redefined by the gospel, to be reconciled to others, truly reconciled in Him, to be as different as we are, Celebrate that diversity and that difference, but join together in one song. In the words of verse 7, as they, that's all of them that have been listed as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are new. The call to Egypt, the call to Babylon, the call to Philistia and Tyre and Cush, and the call to us here today in Dunn, or wherever we may be, is to come to God and find in Him our all. To lay aside the things we try to build our life on and find our nourishment in that just poison us or wear us out. To lay those down and find in Him all we need. It's sufficient for us to find His strength as our strength in the midst of our weakness. To hear this welcome today and sing this song with them that all my fountains are in you. That God, you are the source of my every good thing. Your grace is my strength and my nourishment to find in Jesus a love that's stronger than our sin. Here's the good news for us this morning. Jerusalem as a physical location of God beginning his work pointed forth to Jesus. Jesus who came to be one of us. To take on our sins. To walk in our steps. Jesus who faced down and defeated death and rose in victorious life and in turn gives us that victory. Jesus who removed every obstacle that stood in the way from us, hearing God call out to us, your home is with me. You are my child. No matter what your own heart says, no matter the verdicts that have been passed on you by other people, you are mine. And I love you. So now God has made his home with us. Not just in a physical location in the Middle East, so we don't need to get on a plane and do a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. But throughout this entire world. And His kingdom has spread today to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're a small group here gathered in this room in Dunn, North Carolina. But the kingdom of God, this morning, today, as, as the, the day will go on, there are scores, there are billions of Christians gathering together, surrounding the same gospel. In so many different languages, singing so many different kinds of songs. Some worship services that would look completely foreign to us in our experience. But God is at work. Bringing massively different people to himself. And we will only see the glory of that one day. When we see a picture, uh, when we truly see what we had a picture of in Revelation 7 that we read earlier. When John looked out and he saw a multitude that nobody could count from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing together one song. That's the glory of the kingdom of God. That there is a profound diversity and the goal that God is, is after is not to make us all look exactly the same. In Psalm 87, God points out all these people, but he's not... He's not asking Egyptians to pretend they're not from Egypt or Babylonians to not pretend they're from Babylonia. There's good aspects of every culture. 
But those people come and they're reformed and they're made new. And they can gather together and sing that one song that centers on the sufficiency of the grace of God for all of us. Today we can know that in Jesus, we are those whose home is with God. And that in Jesus, we are those who are called from everywhere, from whoever we are and from wherever we are to find in Him our own. Now we can look to Jesus who called a wide variety of people to follow him. Women, and men, children, fishermen, tax collectors, widows, the poor, the rich. We can look to him and begin to be people who love what he loves and value what he values. That we can see a small glimpse of Psalm 87 come to life here and done. I pray for that constantly. Unity and diversity is a core value of my heart. Is something I want to see come to life in our church. We have diversity in our church. We have generational diversity. We have um, economic diversity. But Dunn, Dunn's a city that's 42% black. It's 48% white. It's about 8% Hispanic. I want to see a church that reflects the true diversity of our city to the glory of God. The divisions that exist are real. They're true. They're deeply rooted and historical. But they don't have to keep going. We don't have to be afraid of our past or our present. We don't have to be afraid of our future. As we confessed earlier, actually, from the Belhar Confession, the unity of God's people must become visible so that the world may believe that separation, hostility, and hatred between people and groups is sin which Christ has already conquered. And accordingly, that anything which threatens this unity may have no place in the church and must be resisted. I bring that up. I bring those words up. And I use the Belhar Confession this morning because the significance of when it was written in the context. So it was written in the 1980s in South Africa. You know anything about South African history? The 80s were a mess. Apartheid. That was the word of the day. What had happened is hundreds and hundreds of years of racial hostility. European uh, settlers and colonists coming down and taking over. Ruling the day and controlling the tribes that were there by force. They had, they had created a stratified society. It was a lot like Jim Crow era South in, in the United States. At the top were the white Europeans. Below them were the Indians from India that had been moved to South Africa while Britain owned both of them. And then you had people who were mixed race, and at the very bottom you had the black African people. And that's how the society was set up. Well, this confession of faith, the Belhar Confession, was written by a black denomination in South Africa. And it was adopted by them at the beginning of talks with the white denominations there, to try to come together to realize the heinousness that was at work in their society that had worked its way and been promoted even by the churches. A way to move forward and be reconciled. And that's why the words are so powerful to me. What happened is they wrote those words and they confessed those words and those words eventually became the bedrock of a truth and reconciliation process that took place there. Where things were faced, things were talked about, things were owned, and people were joined together and could move forward in unity and peace. 
I bring that up because I want to see, so I'm not going to write a new confession. We don't need to write a new, the, the done confession of 2022. There's plenty of resources in the Christian church so we can, we can move forward. But um, as we're a young church, as we're looking at the future, as we're praying for something like unity and diversity to come to life, and diversity is not limited to racial topics. There's a, there's a number of things that could fall under the rubric of diversity. But we want to see and be purposeful about, caring about, and praying about things that might not affect me or my family directly or even my neighborhood, but affect Don. We want to be a church that's good news for Don, for all of Don, not just one segment. We want to be a place that serves all of Don, not just one segment. So join me in praying for this. It's something I long to see come to life in our church. Um, that we would be somewhere that reflects the beauty of Dunn's diversity. Let's look at it. Diversity is not a problem to be solved. It's a reality to celebrate. It's something that we can see happen and see God's idea for diversity. Him calling very different people together with one another to sing one song together. We can see it happen. We can see it happen. So let's be people who find our home in Jesus. Let's find our welcome in Him and be people that hold the door open for this city. But not just hold the door open, be people who fling the doors, our doors open, as wide as Jesus has flung the doors of the kingdom of God open and say welcome to all who Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your idea of diversity. I thank You that You have accomplished it. That you have bought with your blood, Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I pray that in the here and now, even in our imperfect world, before you have made all things new, that we would see just a portion of it come to life. That you would make our church somewhere that reflects this value, that is your value. That you would make our church a place that is not fearful of the past, the present, or the future, but that rejoices in what you are up to. And rejoices that your grace is not just a grace that reconciles us to you, but it's a grace that reconciles us to one another. That you are the one that removes the dividing walls of hostility for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.